a number of years ago, it's been a long time ago, about 1998 or 1999, Mati V and I were at uh, the Ligonier Conference in Orlando, Florida with Dr. R.C. Sproul. I've been to many Ligonier Conferences over the years. My first one was in 1994, uh, and uh, I have heard some amazing speakers at those conferences. And this one was at the First Baptist Church in Orlando, which Sinclair Ferguson said looked like the New Jerusalem coming down from heaven because in Scotland all their churches are small and this church is enormous. It held like 6,500 people and it was packed. And uh, they had a, a, a whole slew of great speakers. Uh, Dr. Sproul, of course, and John MacArthur and Ravi Zacharias and uh, uh, Alastair Begg. And uh, anyway, I can't remember all of them that were there. But as you know, they would give different plenary talks where the speakers would give uh, their messages. But then they also had little seminars in between where uh, they would have different uh, discussions and they would get a panel together. You know, you all have been to Ligonier or you've seen it online. You can watch it now on YouTube. Uh, the speakers would all sit uh, in, a, in chairs and they set it up really nice and then two of them would get up and they'd talk about something or a moderator would ask questions. Well, I was there and had the, Mati V and I both had the privilege of being there in the famous debate between R.C. Sproul and the Scottish Baptist preacher Alastair Begg on the subject of infant versus believer baptism. And so they gave Alastair Begg, many of you know who uh, Dr. Begg is, a very wonderful man, Scottish, young, young guy, at least at the time, he's older now. R.C. was in his prime, his most vicious and pit bullish uh, prime. And so they got up at their podiums and, you know, the topic was introduced and Alastair Begg got to go first and give his, his plea and his theological and biblical reasons for uh, uh, infant bapt or believer's baptism, and, uh, and he did it very gently and respectful to the older statesman, uh, Dr. Sproul. Dr. Sproul came out like a pit bull, and he took Alastair Begg and shook him like a rag doll. He was brutal in the best way possible. And at one point, he had Alastair Begg against the proverbial ropes. He didn't know what to say. R.C. was just hammering him with scriptures and logic and biblical history and theology and everything you can imagine. And Begg was like a deer in the headlights. He's, he's kind of standing there wobbling from side to side. And he turned to John MacArthur and he said to John MacArthur, aren't you going to help me? And MacArthur said, you're on your own. Of course, the following year, they did the same debate. This time, they brought John MacArthur. And now you had two pit bulls uh, going at it. So I'm going to talk a little bit about infant baptism this morning. I I'm not as well-versed nor as pit bullish as Dr. Sproul, but uh, I want to give you uh, our case for infant baptism, and, and then you have to decide. Uh, but hear now the word of God. It's printed. The text I'm going to use is one I've used before many times. And uh, hear, hear God's word from Genesis 15. And uh, I'll begin reading in, at verse 1. Let's, let's read the word of God. After these things, 
The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold... The word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, Look toward the heavens and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed God, believed the Lord, believed Yahweh. And God counted it to him as righteousness. And he said, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land. But Abram said, O Lord, how shall I know? How shall I know that I shall possess the land? And God said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, and Abram cut them in half, and laid each half against the other. He did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they shall be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed, between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. This is the word of the Lord. Dr. J. Adams, in uh, his little treatise on infant baptism, says this, and And I think Dr. Adams is absolutely right. Infant baptism is not dedication. Let me say it again. Infant baptism is not dedication. You can dedicate your voice, your car, your house, or whatever you choose to the Lord, but you do not thereby, the dedication, you do not thereby enter into a covenant with God. Dedication is something you do. It is not something God commands. A covenant with God is always dictated by Him. He determines the institute, the covenant, and He lays down its terms. You enter into it on His terms, 
in obedience to His command to do so. A covenant is not optional. You do as God says, or there will be consequences. When God covenanted with Abraham, the father of the faithful, Old and New Testament alike, He told him that if he failed to obey, his children would be cut off from the covenant people. And all the outward benefits that membership entailed. That covenant with its blessings is still in effect. Now, I understand that there's, that's a pretty strong statement by Dr. Adams. But that is why... And let me say this gently, this is why we believe that our children are to be included in the covenant of grace. They are to be numbered among us. Because we see baptism as a sacrament, a mysterium of God. We do not see baptism as simply an ordinance that we observe. With all respect to other traditions, the church for 1,500 years, always included its children in the covenant of grace. And before that, all the children of the old covenant were also included in the covenant of grace. At eight days old, male children were circumcised before they could do anything good or bad or make any kind of a decision. The basic difference is this, I think, and I'm not alone in what I'm saying, The difference is this. In our belief of baptism, what we are observing here is God's promise to us. We are assenting to that promise. But it starts with Him saying, You are mine. You and your children. And the promises that I have made to you Go to your children. They apply to your children. Will you believe me? Will you trust me for the life of your children? Will you entrust to my sovereign will and my sovereign care every second of their life from the time they were conceived until they breathe their last breath? Will you trust me? Because I, God Almighty, am making a promise to you so in our belief, we do not come to, say, to God and say, here I am, and I'm affirming you. It's the opposite. And why it is so significant, and why you have great men of faith like R.C. and John MacArthur and Alistair Begg, who in good conscience can debate this. But make no mistake, my friends, there is a difference. And while grace prevails regardless of whether or not you observe a particular ritual, it begs the question, why would we not mark our children and put the holy sign and seal of God's promise on those little ones the same way people have been doing for millennia? That begs the question. Now, there, again, there's good arguments on both sides. But I am a Presbyterian minister. I wear the robe of a pre- Look at this. Isn't this great? It's cool. It's hot as blazes in here. This, you know, but anyway. 
But I, I'm going to make the case for it. So let's look at, let's look at why we baptize our babies. And, and I think it's here in Genesis. I've, I've shared this with many of you before, but I think it's here as clear as day. Here we go. Four things let's look at very quickly because we don't have lots of time. But the promise, first of all, what is the promise that in Acts 2.37-38 through 38, that I read to Nick and Deb earlier? What is this promise? Because th- the promise Peter said to a whole crowd of 3,000 men who wanted to knew- know what must we do to be saved. And Peter said, be baptized you and your children. And you shall be saved. Because the promise is to you and your children. The promise is there. What promise is he talking about? I think the promise is right here. It starts at the very beginning of your Bible. If you look at your Bible, what's the first book in the Bible? Genesis. What's the, right off the bat, who are we talking about in Genesis? We're talking about Adam, Eve, Noah, and Abram. I mean, right off the bat, chapter 15. Actually, chapter 12, we're introduced to Abram. Abram is the father, the Bible says, of the faithful. That means all of you, the ancient Hebrew people, and everybody that believes in Him today. Do do you see? That promise was made then, and that promise was never abrogated, it was never taken away, it was never uh, changed in any, any such way. It always had its fulfillment in somebody and their children. In chapter 15 and 17 and 12 of Genesis, it's fulfilled in Abraham and his heir, Isaac. And completely fulfilled and ultimately fulfilled in another heir. So first of all, the promise, the problem, let's acknowledge the problem with promises, folks. We'll talk about that a little bit. The person who is the promise. Now you might, your mind might run right away to Jesus. Oh, Jesus is the promise. Abraham didn't know anything about Jesus. Who was the promise to Abraham? It was his son Isaac. And finally, the person... The person who went through those pieces. Somebody went through those pieces and was torn to shreds. So, let's go. The promise. The promise was this, and it has always been this, and it has never changed throughout millennia from day one, from Adam and Eve until now. The promise has always been God's what? His presence and His place. In other words, if you found God, God said, I will give you my presence and I will give you a place to observe that presence. A special sanctuary, a holy place. It started out in the garden, and we lost the garden. And God came to Noah, and He said, I will renew my covenant with you to renew the face of the earth. I will be with you, covenant and place. There will be seed time and harvest and all those good things. He probably in the rainbow. The rainbow is going to be a sign and a seal to you that what I'm saying is true. All right? Again, 
He makes the exact same promise to Abram. Chapter 12. He takes Abram outside of his tent. Now we don't know how he appeared to Abram, but he took him outside the tent. And he says, look up at the stars. I will give you descendants like these stars. And I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you a place on the face of the earth where I will be present with you. That's the promise. The promise of God's presence and the promise of a place, a sanctuary. Listen folks, a temple, a church, a place where we can gather. Why do we want you to come to church? To come see my robe? No, of course not. We come to church because we need to be together. We don't need to be apart. We need to be together. There's a communal aspect to God's presence and power. Yes, He's with you individually. But more than that, we need each other. Because it's there that we experience the dynamic of presence in a particular place. I will be with you. The Lord came to Abram, chapter 15. He said, fear not, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. He's telling Abram, I'm renewing the promise I've made to humanity from day one. I'm going to do it now in you. You are now my man. And your descendants will fill the earth. And folks, make no mistake, God says it in black and white and why we believe that baptism of infants is entirely biblical and can be proven biblically is because He's making that same promise to His children to his descendants. And everybody believes that. Even our, our Baptistic brothers and sisters believe that. And why? They can't help themselves. They dedicate their babies. Because we all know Baptist, Presbyterian makes no difference. Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox makes no difference. The church has always recognized something must be done with our children. Our children cannot be treated as outsiders. Yes? Say Amen. Of course, I don't care what tradition you come from. And all respect to all traditions. We've always known we've got to do something with our kids. We don't just leave them out there and say, oh, you don't belong. Who does that to their children? What parent would do that? If you do that to your children, I need to see you. Nobody does that. We always include our children. And God includes His children and their children and their children. Are you with me? Do you see it? The promise of power. Look at the heavens, he said. Number the stars, if you're under, so shall your offspring be. He's not just promising him lots of kids, he's promising him kids with a promise. Do you see it? So important that you see it. I will make you a great nation. And then he goes on and says in, in, in 12, he says, not only am I going to bless you and your descendants, I'm going to bless everybody on earth because of you. Every nation will be blessed because of you. In other words, he's saying you don't have to be born into this. You don't have to have the ethnicity or the genetical, uh, genetic uh, DNA of a Hebrew person. You could be anybody that simply trusts in God for your salvation. Do you see what I'm saying? It's by faith, not by a generation or ethnicity. Thanks be to God, Yes. Like I said last week, I mean, how many of us have, have Hebrew or Jewish DNA in our blood? 
Probably a few, but not too many. We must rely on God's good grace to us, those outside of the so-called interior family of God, of just simple ethnicity. And in the Old Testament as well as the New, Gentiles were always included and welcomed into the community of faith as long as they profess faith in, in, in God. Yes? Always. 100% of the time. Welcome them. No strings attached. Of course, it was perverted as it has been in our day, even in the church. So the promise of presence and place. And that place for Abraham was a plot of land in the Middle East. And we acknowledge that. But let's go on to the second point. What is the problem with a promise? On the face of it, the problem with promises is what? Think about it for a second. The problem with a promise is that promises are always based on what? Future. Right? Even if I say to you, I promise to give you this cup, the Lord's blood, in a few moments, you're still going to have to wait a few minutes to get it, right? Even if I promise I'm going to come out here and I'm walking, I promise I'm going to shake Danny's hand. Shake my hand, buddy. Okay. Do you see? There was some seconds that took place. You understand? The problem with a promise is it requires you to believe the word of the person who made the promise. And there's a problem with that, make no mistake about it, because Abraham confesses it. God comes to him in 12, chapter 12, makes a promise. Years pass, some scholars say 25 years pass. Then God comes back and makes another promise. Because why? Because Abram is doubting God. The problem with the promise, folks, is you're going to have to believe the promise. And in the interim time that passes... It's easy for us to doubt. Do you know the Bible rarely says, do not doubt? Why? Because doubt is natural and normal to human beings. We do doubt. The, problem, the, pro, the Bible always says what? Do not what? Fear. Do not fear, because fear starts to set in and make you doubt the promise. And God says, do not fear. And as I reminded you a few weeks, Scott Saul's, Wonderful pastor, one of our pastors in Nashville. He says, if you fear God, you don't have to fear anything else. Don't you love that? You fear God, you don't have to be afraid of anything else. Because come what may, whether your children are suffering from a terrible disease, whether you get a disease, whether your child dies, whether you lose your job, whether your marriage is a wreck, whatever the case may be, God has promised you something. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be present and I will be in place with you. Presence and place. The promise, the problem is always that we have got to take time to get to the promise. And what God is asking us is simply this. Folks, This is at its bottom line what Christianity and the Old Testament faith was all about. It's simply this. 
God, a being so beautiful, so holy, so magnificent, so powerful that He created the universe and promises to provide for you, simply says to you and me and the Old Testament people, everybody in the world, He has always simply said this, Will you trust me? How precious is that? A simple request from you to trust Him. Don't you say that to your own children? Don't you tell your children, I know it hurts right now, but will you trust me? Don't you say that to your spouses? I know we're in trouble, but will you trust me? I'm going to work at making our marriage better. Don't you say that to your employer when you mess up? I promise I'll do better. Don't we do that? Don't we hope that someone will believe our promises? And God is the same. He's made a promise and He wants us to believe it. Will you lay hold? That is all the Christian faith is about. It's simply about laying hold on the promise maker. As feeble as Horatius Boner says, as feeble and, and sorry a spectacle as that faith may be. And sometimes, folks, it is pathetic. Sometimes it's like a thread hanging on for dear life. Sometimes the thread breaks and you have nothing. And it's then that He promises, I will bind you with cords of love. I will do it. Me for you. Even when we fail, even when we run and deny Him three times to other men like Peter, He comes back and He says, Feed my sheep, will you trust me? Do you see it? It's a simple call to faith. A promise. And not from a human being that can break promises like willy-nilly. No, no, no. A God who makes a promise and never fails. Will you trust Him? You know, Nick and Deb, you, for the rest of your lives... No matter what happens to your girls, no matter how many children you have, you're going to have to trust them every day of your life, yes? Even if they become doctors and lawyers and president of the United States, you're going to have to, to trust God for them. I have two 30-year-old boys and a little granddaughter that's going to be two pretty soon, the cutest child on earth. No, there's lots of cute children, but we love our little baby. I have to trust every day. And this is why I told some of you parents whose kids have gone off the rails and you don't know what's going on. You think, what, where did it happen to these kids? To claim this promise, to say to God, you promised, you promised Abraham and you promised through Peter that the promise was to me and my offspring. I want you to turn, I want you to get my kids. I don't care where they are. And if you're laying on your deathbed and your children are off in never never land doing some crazy stuff, the last breath I want to hear come from your lips is, you promised. I'm coming to you, I'm going to die right now, but you promised to save my children. Now we'll, I'm holding you to that. And then trust Him, yes? Doesn't that, isn't that, doesn't that make you feel good? Doesn't that make you feel sound and, and firm instead of hoping to God that somehow you can talk Him into it? Hey, good luck with that. In the famous words of John Calvin, good luck with that. You don't talk people into it. 
You make your arguments, you raise them up the best you can in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but you must trust Him. That's the problem with a promise. Trust Him, trust Him, trust Him till the day you die. And Abraham, it says in what R.C. Sproul and others have said, and I agree, the most important verse in the Bible. Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord imputed it to him for righteousness, which is where we get our doctrine of faith, by the way. And it shows us that God is an objective person in whom we place our faith. And our faith, listen folks, I've said it a hundred times in this church. I'm going to say it a hundred and one. Write it down. Your faith is only as good as the object you put it in. Amen? Yes? That's the absolute truth. That is the difference between us and I don't know how much else of religion, including sadly some parts of Christianity. So quickly, he makes this covenant... The person who is the promise. Very quickly, I have to summarize it. Abraham is called uh, by God to enter into a ritual. Now this ritual is foreign to us. Some of you know what I'm talking about, but many of you this may be new. The ritual to make a covenant was different than a contract. A contract, you make a, a written agreement, you go to a notary public, they stamp it, hey, it's good, all that stuff. But... If you break the contract, nobody dies, right? Nobody gets cut to pieces. But in the old days, they did it different. And you know what? It might be a good idea if we did that at, at a marriage. How about this if we did this at a wedding? We got some animals and we cut them in pieces and made the aisle where the bride and groom come down a bloody mess. And we make them walk through those pieces. And all the time, the pastor's up here chanting, if you break this covenant, you break this covenant, we're going to tear you to pieces. How many people would get divorced, right? I'm not divorced. No way. I'd, you know, I don't want to get torn to pieces. But we don't do that anymore. But don't be, the covenant's still real. So they would cut these pieces, and then the party, the suzerain, the great king, would tell his vassal, the one he's making the covenant with, you walk through these pieces and you promise to me that if you break this, this covenant, you will be torn to pieces. And the vassal, hey, he's going to get killed anyway, so he's got to make a treaty with the great king. So he says, yeah, I'll do whatever you say. And he walks through the pieces. But in, in Genesis 15, Abraham was amazed because he fell asleep. And he was not asked to walk through the pieces. Something else went through those pieces. Someone else passed through the valley of the shadow of death. Someone else made his way through. And don't let the imagery escape you. It was a smoking fire, a pillar of fire and smoke. Now this story was told. Who was repeating the story night after night after night around the campfires on the plains of Moab as they were getting ready to enter the promised land? Who's the audience of this right now in this story? Who are they? The tribes of Israel. They're telling the story about Abraham being there asleep and, and, a, and a pillar of fire and smoke passes through the pieces. What do you think came into their mind? What? Christ the King. What? What was traveling with them every day of 40 year journey? What was there? In fact, it was there while they were telling the story. What did they see? Pillar of fire and clouds. Their minds would have immediately gone to God who walked through the pieces. 
In other words, God is saying, I'll fulfill the covenant for you, sleepy man, who sleeps and does nothing but observes and is astonished and amazed. I for you, me for you. No religion on earth does that, folks. No one, no one, no one conceived of it. No one imagined. Me for you. And the promise was fulfilled in his beautiful little son Isaac and Abraham rejoiced. But in chapter 22, as you know, I have to finish, God called Abraham to take his son up onto the holy mountain Moriah and to slay his son, to sacrifice his son, to cut his son into pieces. Why? Because Abraham, like everybody else in this room and every other human being on the earth, we have broken that covenant, folks. Not just once, time and time again. Isaac was the promise. But what happened to Isaac? Abraham is plunging the knife into the breast of his child and an angel stops him and instead there's a ram caught in a thicket. And it was the ram instead of Isaac. And so who is in view here? Is Isaac the son of promise? Or is there someone who stands behind in the mystery of eternity in the universe, someone who's standing behind that? And I would like to suggest that the one who made that walk through those pieces was no one less than Jesus Christ Himself. What He said to Abram, Abram didn't know. He just knew it was God going through the pieces as all the Hebrews on the plains of Moab would have known that it was God going through the pieces. But we know now who went through those pieces. We know who got torn limb from limb. We know who the knife actually plunged. We know who went through the valley not of the shadow of death but of death itself. We know who stepped into that place of death for that little one and that little one. And that's why we would, I would die before I would not baptize my baby, my little Alia, because I want her to be marked. I want the world to know this one, God says, this one is mine, me for you. I put my mark on this child and I make a solemn promise and I seal it with the life of my own dear Son, who passed through the pieces for you. You see, Abraham should have been ripped to shreds. So should you. And God help me. So should me. So should I. And the Apostle Paul said this. Let me close with this. In Christ, listen carefully now, listen. In Christ you were circumcised, that means you all collectively in some mysterious way, with a circumcision made without hands. In other words, it was not a physical circumcision. It was not a bloody circumcision. By putting off the body of the flesh, by, listen, the circumcision of Christ. He 
was cut off for you. The one who deserved to be included was excluded. And the one who deserved to be excluded, cut off, circumcised, put to death, included me and everyone that belongs to me. In the old world, Abraham stood as the head of his family. He was, those of you that come from more traditional families, you understand what I'm talking about. The patriarch, when my grandfather did something, it affected his whole family. Yes? We've gotten away from that because, you know, we, don't, we are more individualistic in America. But when you go to other parts of the world, guilt is singular. Yes? You're guilty for your sin. Shame is corporate, yes? If your child sins or gets thrown in jail for axe murders, you feel shame. Are you with me? There's a difference. You have individual, but you also have corporate shame. And so there's this whole idea by the circumcision of Christ, his having been cut off, listen now having been buried with Him in baptism. That's what we just did. All we did was apply the sign and seal of His getting cut off and His promise to us that if we will trust that, not the thing itself, but what it means, the sign, it's pointing to something. It's pointing, according to Paul, to the cutting off of Christ, to His death. Listen having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. The sign and seal of baptism, whether you immerse or dunk or sprinkle, whatever, those are up for debate. But the baptism itself is symbolic, emblematic emblematic of Christ's death, Christ's burial, Christ's resurrection, and our participation in that Will you trust Him? Will you do it? I hope you will. I hope you'll do it for yourself. And I hope you'll do it for your children. And if you have children that are older and they're often, you tell God when you get home today from church, I don't know what's going on with my kid, but you promised. And Pastor Chuck told me that if I would trust you, you would save my child. Yes? And so you can invoke my name or whatever it's worth. Promise. Made by a promise keeper to promise breakers. Trust Him. Father, um, thank You for Your kindness and Your mercy that endures forever. Thank You for including these little ones, Sidney and Gabrielle, in Your covenant. And Father, we pray that they will never know a day in their lives that Jesus Christ is not their Lord and Savior. And we hold You to that promise which You've called on us to do. And we do it with all humility and gratitude and thanks and love to You, the One who has marked us and said me for You. And so we ask You, Father, in, in Your good timing, in Your providence, as we confess in our Westminster Catechism, that You will, in Your good time, bring these children to saving faith. Maybe it was today. Maybe it will be in a year from now or ten years. We don't know. 
But we do know that You have promised. And we lay hold on that promise and leave the rest to You. And God, we trust. Please. And as we come to Your table, we ask that You would feed us in our hearts by faith. That we might commune with You and You with us in this holy sacrament of the Lord's table. Amen.